Well, I'd like to welcome all of you here, whether you're here in the room or those of you joining us online from wherever you're joining us, those in our Skagit campus, so good to have you with us today. I just want to say what a blast it was two weeks ago to be with you for the 10-year anniversary and to celebrate in the baptisms there. Those in Jim Church in Belize, so glad that you're with us. Uh, we're in this series on um, lessons from the life and times of Joshua. It's not necessarily a study through the book of Joshua, though that's where most of it comes from, but it's lessons from the life of Joshua. And uh, if you were here last week or if you've been with us, you know we've kind of been going through this. And, um, and if you were here last week and you've been with us in this series, you will discover today that I'm going to kind of mess with the timeline. And for some of you, this will bring about great disequilibrium in your mind because you like things chronological and in order the way that God designed things. And I'm messing your whole world up. But God may use this to help you with your OCD tendencies today. <laughs> last week, Pastor Kip preached about Joshua in Jericho out of Joshua chapter 5 and 6. And if you weren't here last week, highly recommend that you go online and watch that or listen to a great, great sermon. As we talked about Jericho last week, um, that obviously has them across the Jordan and into the promised land. But in our series, we've not yet crossed the Jordan River. So we're going to get in a DeLorean just a little bit and take a little back to the future trip, a little quantum leap, because while we were last week in chapters five and six of Joshua, today we're going to be more in chapters three and four and, and a little bit in chapter five, going to go from the West Bank back to the East side, and we're going to kind of start over. As long as I've messed up the whole timeline and the chronology of this series, I might as well take it way out of context. Context. So let's go back to week one, where in our series, Moses was still alive. He had not yet passed the baton to Joshua. He knew that he was not going to be able to go into the promised land. God had made that clear to him. And he knew that his days on earth were coming to an end. And so he begins to address Israel. And in his final days, he writes the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. And what's interesting about the book of Deuteronomy is that in this book, he, he repeats himself from some other things that he's said in the law. He reminds them of some things that he's already addressed. He, he reiterates some things that are of the gravest importance that they would have this kind of these, like, if you don't remember anything, as, as I leave you, I need you to remember these things. And there's a theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy. There's not a lot of new material because a lot of it's repeated from earlier in, in, the, uh, in the Pentateuch. But there's this theme, and see if you can pick up on this. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he writes these words, Remember, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. He wants them to remember. Just remember back for these last 40 years as you've been in the wilderness. The Lord your God, and that's a repeated refrain that comes up again. The Lord your God has led you. He guided you. He provided for you. He has given you manna every single day. You haven't had to work for your food. When you were thirsty, he brought water out of a rock. When you wanted meat, he brought quail into the camp. Your shoes and your sandals, your clothes have not worn out for 40 years. This is miraculous. It's so good that styles didn't change back then. Some of you that you would have hated this. There's no retail therapy. I can't go shopping. Nothing has worn out. Of course, that doesn't stop many of you anyway. But this, he'd said, I've been with you for these 40 years. Later in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 15, he says again, remember, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. He says, don't forget where you came from. Keep in mind that anyone who is like 41, 42 years old or younger, they don't remember the days in Egypt. 
They were born free, as free as the wind blows, as free as the grass grows. They were born, they didn't know, they, they had heard about, but they hadn't been there. And he says, don't forget that you as a people were once enslaved. You were, you were in Egypt, but I, the Lord your God, have taken you. And then he also gives kind of the, the negative version of the same thing. Chapter 8, where he says, be careful that you do not forget. You remember, but do not forget the Lord your God. Failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses makes a prediction. He says, if you don't intentionally remember these things, if you begin to forget these things, then this is what's going to happen. You're going to go into the land that the Lord your God gave you. You're going to establish yourself in your homes. You're going to build these houses. Your flocks and your herds will increase. Your family will be there. You'll be successful and prosperous. Life will be good. And when all of that happens, he says in, uh, in verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 13 times in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, remember, 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 remember the Lord your God. Nine times he says, do not forget, do not forget, do not forget the Lord your God. He knows that they have a tendency. He knows how they are. He knows what is, is facing them. He knows what they might do. In the early 2000s, I believe it was 2003, um, a movie came out. To me, it's one of the classics of all time. In fact, if you haven't seen this movie, I rarely just, you know, blanket recommend. If you haven't seen this movie, you need to. And if you have seen it, you need to watch it again. It's called Finding Nemo. Now, hear, hear me out. As you know, Pixar Studios took animation to a new level. I mean, it was just like, wow, it's amazing. But the storyline of Finding Nemo, I mean, it's an amazing storyline. Actually, it's not an original storyline. It, it's straight out of the Bible. I mean, it is full on the prodigal son. Finding Nemo has a loving father, a wayward son, an irrational search, and a joyful reunion. In fact, I think Jesus could probably sue them for some intellectual property, uh, you know, stuff, but he won't do that. But one of the things I love about, you know, those kind of movies is while they're made for children, there's a whole level that's done for the parents and grandparents that the kids won't pick up on. And the development of the characters in this movie were phenomenal. I mean, if you remember Nigel, this, this pelican, or, or the seagulls, or their mind, mind, mind. They're so self-centered in all this mind. The, the, the classic to me was the shark who has a 12-step support group trying to help him not be a shark. It's a feeding frenzy. And, and, and then there was, there was Crush, this turtle, this surfer dude. Noggin, dude. You know, this, and he's just like spicoli, whatever. And, and then but the, the, the key character was this clownfish named Nemo. And then there was this lovable somewhat ditzy blue tang. Do you remember her name? Dory. Dory. Yeah. Swimming, swimming, swimming. There was something about her. And what's interesting is that after the movie, a true story, neurologists analyzing the movie identified and diagnosed her condition. It's an actual condition. Um, it's called um, anterograde amnesia. And anterograde amnesia means that you're unable to create new memories. It's kind of a neurological Snapchat. It's like you're there in the moment, you're enjoying it, you're experiencing, you're present, but then it just goes away. Now, some of you are like, snap, what? Okay, let me, for, for, let me help you out with that. You remember when you used to take pictures with a camera and not a phone? 
there was like a memory card. If you were taking all these pictures, but you didn't have the memory card. Okay, some of you said, okay, you remember when you used to put film in the camera? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to connect with you here. You can take all these pictures, but it's not recorded. Well, that's kind of this, this, this condition. And when, when, when Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy, I think one of the things that he is doing is that he's confronting this, the Dory syndrome of Israel. That they're there, they're present, they're experiencing it, they're amazed by it, but they're not going to remember it. And so he says, remember this, remember this, remember this, don't forget this, don't forget this. You need to hold on to these things. In fact, throughout Israel's history, God gives them some ways to help remember. All of the festivals and all the feasts that they have every year, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Passover, all of those things were reminders I want you to remember something that happened in the past so, or so that you don't forget the Lord your God. All of those were annual reminders that they would systematically come back and not forget these things. Likewise, there were some tangible reminders that God had given them as well. And that's what we will see today, a very tangible reminder so that he confronts this Dory syndrome that they have of just forgetting the Lord their God. So we're going to go back and, and now we're going to Bring them across the Jordan River. We're going to cross the Jordan River and come into the promised land. You know, some of you who were raised um, in church may remember that at times there were gospel songs or spirituals that would use crossing the Jordan as a metaphor. It's always like this metaphor for death. We've been in this difficult life on this, this, this earth that we trod, and, and, and there will come this day when we cross the Jordan, the chilly Jordan, and then we go into the promised land. Well, this is not just a metaphor for them. They've been in the wilderness. It's been difficult. Now there's this barrier, but once they get across the barrier, they're into the land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses is now dead. Joshua is leading the charge. And you just think about Joshua. You know, he's strong and courageous. He's leading the charge. You think about that picture of, of Washington crossing the Delaware. You know that picture where he's on the bow of the boat and the flag is flying. He's like, we're going to follow him. He's willing to take the first bullet. Here we go. Joshua's going to lead us. That's not quite how it played out. Joshua chapter 3 says this, verse 6. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Oh, sure, send the pastors in first. That's it. <laughs> Let them take the first shots. He says, I want the priests to go first, and I want them to take the Ark of the Covenant. And there's some other instructions. You can read this on your own. And everyone else stay back about 1,000 yards. So let that go way out there first, which <laughs> you can know the priests are going, okay, here we go. And there away they go. And they're going to cross the Jordan River. Now, let's talk about the Jordan River, because this is that, I mean, we hear about the Jordan River. It's a significant thing in biblical things. I mean, it's just, it's always there. And, and some of us grew up with this idea and this picture of the Jordan River. We sang, Michael, row your boat ashore. You know, the, the river is long or the river is deep and the river is wide. Hallelujah. You know, all this stuff. Well, the truth is, is that while it's very significant, the Jordan River itself is really not that impressive. I mean, if you've seen the Columbia River or the Fraser River or the Skagit River or the Nooksack for that matter, the Jordan River, in fact, when we take trips to Israel, sometimes I warn people because they've got these ideas of the Jordan River that they've seen on the flannel boards from childhood. And then they get there and they're severely underwhelmed because seriously, you can throw a baseball across to the other side everywhere on this river. And there were times during the, 
the dry seasons where the river got quite low and there were some very shallow areas where people would ford this river all the time. So crossing it would not have been that big of a deal at certain times of year in certain places. But that was not the case here. Verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Okay. While the Jordan is not that big of a river, at flood stage, it would be impassable. The timing of this couldn't have been worse. There are so many better times, easier times to be able to cross the Jordan. And where they're crossing it and when they're crossing it, I think was God's intentional way of saying, will you trust me? I want to show you that there's no way you can do this on your own. This is only going to be happening because I, the Lord, your God, am going to make a way for you as I always have. And I don't want you to forget those things. And so here are these priests, and they've got the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, you think about this. You know the Ark of the Covenant. You know the box. You saw Indiana Jones, that whole thing. Here they go. The wisdom of this. Send these guys with the heaviest box you've got at flood stage into the water. Doesn't make a lot of sense. But they go, and they've got the Ark of the Covenant, and it's a 1,000 yards ahead of everyone else. This Ark of the Covenant that represents the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant that would normally be you know, in the tabernacle, in that holy of holies. The Ark of the Covenant that you couldn't just, you couldn't even touch it. You couldn't just go in there and check it out. The Ark of the Covenant that, that represented the power of God. It was symbolic of the, of the justice and the, and, the, and the holiness of God. I mean, inside the box were the, the two stone tablets. They were in there. The law of God. But it also was symbolic of the mercy and the grace and the peace of God because there on the lid, right between the two cherubim, the angels, right there was referred to as the mercy seat. And there on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that's where they would sacrifice the blood. That's where they would drip the blood for the forgiveness. But most of all, it was that presence of God that was symbolic of where the ark was. There was God. He was in their tabernacle. He was in the Shekinah glory. And now he goes before them. That his presence is going to lead his presence is going to give them the land. His presence is going to provide as it always has. And so they go and they walk. And this is what happens. Verse 15. Now the Jordan is at flood stage during all harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Again, I try to put myself in the, in the sandals of the priests. Joshua says, you guys go first. We'll be a thousand yards back. Just start walking. And they're walking. And there's the water. And it's flood stage. And they're walking. They're like, keep walking. Joshua's not there with them. Keep walking. I mean, this is a step of faith now. They're going into these floodwaters. And when they do, then God stops the water. And it's a parallel miracle, very similar to what had happened 40 years earlier. 40 years earlier, when God was bringing them out of captivity, he parts the Red Sea, a barrier that they couldn't cross themselves. And now as they're going into the promised land, he stops up the Jordan River, a barrier that they couldn't do themselves. There's a parallel here, and I think what God is sending in a message is that God is no less sovereign. He's the same God that he was 40 years ago. He is the same power that he had 40 years ago. He is guiding and providing the same way he did 40 years ago. Nothing has changed with him. 
You can trust him. You can obey. You can be strong and courageous because God is still leading you. God is still faithful to his promises. He hasn't changed at all. And what's interesting is while these are parallel miracles on both sides of the wilderness, while there's similarities, they're not exactly the same. I was talking with Tammy Scott. She goes to our Saturday night service and she preached on this years ago at a church that she was a part of. And she's, she made this point. She said, when you see these two miracles, you recognize that God and his sovereignty is always the same, but God is always doing something new. It doesn't get into this, this same routine, the same ritual. He's not predictable in that way. You've always got to realize God is always breathing fresh wind. He's always got a new way. He's always, that way we stay in connection with him. And while there's some similarities, they're different. And they go in and they see the sovereignty of God. Now, again, Israel is experiencing this. They're seeing all this happen. They're walking through. But Israel, we know, has the tendency towards this Dory syndrome. This could be a Snapchat moment for them. They'll see it and then it will disappear. And so in order to make sure that they don't have that moment, Joshua chooses 12 men. My guess, I think it's a pretty fair guess, is that it was one from each tribe. And this is what he says, chapter four, verse five. Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. So when he says, take up a stone on your shoulder, he's not just talking about a rock. He's not just talking about, you know, a cobble. He's talking about something that, that would be awkward to carry this way. And so if you can get it up on your shoulder, you can use your strongest muscles to be able to carry this out. So it's a pretty good sized rock, these 12 rocks. So which seems a little bit odd that now they're going into a new land and now Joshua picks up a new hobby. Now he's a rock collector. So now we're going to, as a nation, we're going to be rock collectors. I don't know if you're a rock collector. Uh, maybe you are. When I was growing up, there were some people in our church. They were what, what you would refer to as rock hounds, and that wasn't a derogatory comment. Uh, we lived in the Portland-Vancouver area. They were forever going, looking in Oregon for thunder eggs. I don't know if you know anything about thunder eggs. Google it, not now, but later. So they'd get these thunder eggs, and they would cut them in half, and they would polish them. They were beautiful, beautiful. And they had the tumbler, you know, where the rocks would get all shiny and soft and all that kind of stuff. Not soft, uh, slick. That's it. Rocks don't get soft. So they do all this stuff. And some of you are rock collectors. You know, you go around, you try to find agates and stuff. Some of you are rock collectors. They're called diamonds. But we have these rock collections. I have a small, very small rock collection. Um, in fact, I want to share with you a part of my rock collection. It's not extensive. Um, in fact, I'm going to have Loa come up here and, and help me so you can see this. I, I brought some of my rocks from my rock collection um, here uh, today. So th this is my, the first rock in my rock collection. It's got a little addition. But it's, um, it's a rock that I got in Costa Rica. It's got a little frog on it, but it's a rock that I got in Costa Rica, and it sits on my desk, and whenever I see this rock, I remember our trip to Costa Rica, and it was an amazing trip. We got to see Jason and Abby Torgerson, our, our missionaries down there, but then we got onto these adventure things, and maybe we went and fed crocodiles, and we got to see a sloth in the wild and all these animals. We did this canopy tour with zip lines, and then this water slide. Uh, we did this water slide that would not be allowed in the United States. When they told us we had to wear helmets and elbow pads, I'm like, it's a water slide. I'm telling you what, this was at the time the longest water slide in Central America, and we needed the helmets and the elbow pads. It was a frightening experience. So whenever I see this rock, um, I remember my trip to Costa Rica. I have this rock 
This rock is from the ATM caves in, uh, in Belize. Uh, the ATM caves are really amazing. I can't tell you what the ATM stands for. You can Google that. It's words that I can't pronounce. But in the ATM caves, you can't walk into these caves. You have to swim into them. So it just starts off with an adventure. And it goes three miles back into the, into the earth. And way back in there, kind of the highlight of this, of this cave tour, and this is a little bit creepy, but it's, it's really quite fascinating, is a thing they refer to as the crystal maiden. When you get way back there, there's this crystallized, fossilized, mineralized skeleton of a young girl that was offered as, an, as a human sacrifice. I know, really, really weird and kind of dark, but amazing. And it's crystallized and, and it just glistens this full skeleton way back and it's just become part of the rock. And so that reminds me of, of, of our time in the ATM caves. This one, this one is from Mount Sinai. Um, a couple times in Israel or Egypt, climbing what some refer to and believe is Mount Sinai, may or may not be, but to climb up there and realize I'm up here where Moses, you know, the burning bush, the Ten Commandments, or Elijah and Mount Sinai, it reminds me of that one. This one is, is from Hezekiah's Tunnel uh, in, in Jerusalem. I love Hezekiah's Tunnel. Here is this, this masterful um, engineering feat 2,800 years ago as they carved through solid rock to bring water into Jerusalem so that if they get sieged by Sennacherib. Okay, all that. But it's in Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, I wouldn't normally take a rock out of Hezekiah's Tunnel because you don't want something that's been around for 28 years to come crashing down on your account. But Tim Miller on our last trip, he grabbed this rock and gave it to me afterwards, so I'm not really guilty. I'm a little bit complicit, but it's my rock. So these are my rock collections. I wanted you to share some. Now, there is one. Or thank you, Loa. There is one of the rock in my collection that I want to share, but it's too big for me to bring in. Uh, in fact, it's too big for me to bring home, but I did bring a picture of it. In my rock collection, I have um, Haystack Rock um, at Cannon Beach. I don't know if you've ever been there, but Haystack Rock is in my rock collection. I, I don't bring it home. I leave it there because there's so much in my childhood. We would go to Cannon Beach and we used to go, they used to let you go out and climb on it. And I remember all those times when I was in high school, we did our senior skip day there. When I was in college, my friend and I, we took our girlfriends there, all that stuff. But the reason that Haystack Rock is a part of my rock collection is because it had new significance in the August of 1992. In the summer of 1992, I had come through the most difficult and darkest season of my life. I'd just gone through a divorce. I was spiritually drained, emotionally unhealthy, questioning everything. And my parents had some friends who had a house in Cannon Beach. And I said, would they let me use that for a private retreat? And I went to Cannon Beach. And they had in this house a bay window with this, this bench on it that looked right out onto Haystack Rock. And those four days by myself, I, I took my guitar, I took my Bible, I took a journal. And I just prayed and I read scripture and I fasted because I was such a low spot in my life. And wondering, God... Can I still be in the ministry? Should I be in the ministry? Am, did I, am I disqualified from the ministry? And what should I do in all of this? And it was, not, it was not an audible voice. But one of the most unmistakably clear times I have ever heard from the Lord, sitting in that bay window, and God spoke so clearly to me, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you. And so this is a part of my rock collection. 
Now, if someone says, hey, Bob, tell me about Haystack Rock, I could tell them that it's this monolithic rock. They call it a sea stack. It's the third tallest sea stack in the world. It's made of basalt. I could give you all those details. I could tell you about my childhood experiences there and my high school experiences there and my college experiences there. But the reason this is in my rock collection is because God did something with me there. And I will never forget that. And it will always remind me of God's word, of God's provision of the Lord, my God. Now, in the same way, Joshua wants these rocks to be a reminder of what God has done so that they won't forget, so that they won't stray, so that they won't just go on with life as no big deal. Joshua chapter 4, verse 20, it says, And Joshua set up in Gilgal, hold on to that because we're going to come back to that, the 12 stones. Now, I don't think this is like you see people out, you know, doing 12 straight up. I think it was probably more of, a, more of a pyramid. He sets up these 12 stones that they had just taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? You tell them. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until, it had until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He said, I want this to be a constant reminder to you. I want these rocks to be a memorial. I want you to always be able to point back to them for you and for your children and for their children that when they see this pile of rocks, it's not just like, oh, look at that cool pile of rocks. No, it's a very significant pile of stones because I don't want you to forget they would need to remember what God had done in the past so they could live in the future. What he had done, he will continue to do. He's not going to fail you. He is faithful. This pile of rocks was a silent witness that spoke volumes. When their children could say, tell us about the pile of rocks, they could tell the story. They could tell the story of Egypt and the Red Sea and the Jordan River and God's provision and the wilderness and all of these things. He says, and I want this to be a constant reminder to you. And he sets him up in Gilgal, which is kind of significant. It became like the headquarters, the, the, the uh, I don't know, the, the sending area while they were taking the land. They would come back to Gilgal. And it was always a reminder. Every time they came back home, there's that 12. We remember what those mean. And what's interesting is about 350 years later, when Israel receives its first king, King Saul became king in Gilgal. Now, speculation on my part, but what if the 12 stones were still there? And what if as King Saul takes on this new role as king, which they've never had before, the 12 stones reminds him, Joshua had never led people before, but the Lord his God provided and maybe it was just a reminder to Saul of this nation's never even had a king before, but the Lord your God, if you will stay faithful and true to him. It's an amazing thing. About 60 or 70 years later, after Absalom's rebellion, David comes back to become king again at Gilgal. And maybe those 12 stones are sitting there, silent witness, speaking volumes about the faithfulness of God. 150 years later, the prophet Elijah and his follower, the prophet Elisha, 
Both have schools of prophets. These young men that they're pouring into, that they're training up. And one of the schools of the prophets was at Gilgal. And how significant it would be as they're training these young prophets to follow the Lord, to hear from him, to do his bidding, to come back to these 12 stones and give them all the history of what God has done, who he's been, so they know how they can live and that he will continue. And all this happens when Joshua has them bring these stones up and to, to remind them and their children of this. In verse 24, it says, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now, let me just for a second talk about this one. To fear the Lord your God. For some, that just, it's like, ah, it just, you know, this whole fear thing because maybe you're raised where, you know, there was this fear motivation in your spiritual deal. God's going to get you. God's watching you. You better confess your sin. You don't want to wake up in hell. I mean, that, that fear thing, and it's very unhealthy. But some of you are like, I don't, the fear of God thing. And, and doesn't the Bible say perfect love cast out all fear? And isn't God perfect love? And, 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 and didn't it say we've not been given a spirit of fear and timidity? And, 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 and didn't God tell Joshua specifically, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid? So what's the deal with this fear? Well, let me just remind you again, or maybe for some of you, hopefully clear up some things. That when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not this cowering, I, I'm just waiting for him to, to bring down his judgment. It's respect, and beyond respect, it's reverence. Amen. It's a sense of awe and honoring the greatness and the, and the majesty and the mystery of God. Whenever the Bible talks about fearing the Lord, really you can come down to this. This is about as basic as it gets. Fearing the Lord is is that you take him very, very seriously. And he wanted them to know, you take the Lord your God very, very seriously because there will be times when they'll get lax, they'll get a little bit comfortable, they'll get a little bit casual, and God doesn't really care about this, we don't really have to follow this, we can kind of, kind of go towards these foreign gods, and it's always to their own peril. So I want you to fear God, respect him, know what it's like to follow him, and to walk away from him. It reminds me of that oft-repeated uh, and very familiar line from the Chronicles of Narnia when Susan is asking Mr. Beaver about the lion, Aslan, and she says, is he safe? <laughs> and Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? Of course, he's not safe, but he is good. That's the picture, the fear of the Lord. He is so good, but we reverence him. So he sets up these 12 stones, and he wants them to remember what God has done. And he wants them to fear the Lord in a healthy way so that they don't have this Dory syndrome and they forget all the time. Because apparently, they've already fallen prey to their Dory-like syndrome. And I, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's important that we hit on it because it all kind of ties together, is that there is something that they've already forgotten they're getting ready to go into the promised land, the land that had been originally promised in the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, God meets with Abram. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham. He makes some promises. He enters into a covenant with him. He makes some promises that he will be a father, that he'll have many descendants. He'll be a father of great nation and that all the nations on earth will be blessed because of him. He makes a promise that he will prosper and he promises him this land. This is 600 years earlier. 
This was the promise. This, this land will be for you and your descendants. And this was the covenant. And he says, oh, and there is one other thing. As a sign of the covenant, as a reminder of the covenant, that you're a part of this covenant, you and all of your male descendants will bear the mark of this covenant in circumcision. And that's what you're going to do. And for 600 years, they did. And it appears that in the 38 years in the wilderness, while they're wandering around, all the new boys that had been born, their parents had a dory moment and conveniently forgot to have any of them circumcised. So all the males, 38 and younger, have not been circumcised. This is a little bit of a problem because that was part of the terms of the covenant. And here they're ready to receive the benefit, the land that was promised, God's providing. But they haven't held up to their end of the deal. And there's another thing as well. That 40 years earlier, part of how they even got out of Egypt was that 10th plague when they put blood over the doorpost so that when the death angel came through, it would, it would pass over. And he knew how quickly they would forget that one as well. So in Exodus chapter 12, it says, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. They're supposed to celebrate the Passover every year. And they did at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, but there's no indication that for the next 38 years in the wilderness that they ever celebrated the Passover. So they're living in disobedience to two of God's commands, that the men should be circumcised and that every year they should celebrate the Passover. And yet they're wanting just the blessings of God without keeping their end of the deal. And there's another little issue that even if they wanted to celebrate the Passover, Exodus 12, 48 says, no uncircumcised male may eat of it. So these younger guys couldn't do it anyway. So there's this moment as they've entered into, and God has already provided, they've got these pile of stones that they realize they're out of alignment in the covenant. And there's a need to make a change here. And so there's kind of this, this renewing the covenant moment there at Gilgal. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this and, and don't get bogged down on the circumcision part. I know for some of you say, could they do like a secret handshake? I get that. <laughs> but there in Gilgal, all the men 38 years old and younger were circumcised. And then, then Joshua chapter 5, verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. For the first time in 38 years, they are now celebrating the Passover. They are now back in a right covenant with God. And when you see all these things that happen right in that, in that very time, this, this pile of these, these 12 stones, the, the men being circumcised again, of, of doing the Passover, celebrating the Passover, each of these is like a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. Every single one of them. And it's past, present, and future. It looks back on what God has done. It's where they are now. And it's how they can move forward. 
The pile of stones reminds them of, of what God did, not only at the Jordan, but at the Red Sea. And it was so that presently they could fear God, they could re respect him and honor him and worship him, and they can move forward with, with, with strength and courage because God, he won't fail them. He's done this all along. The circumcision reminds them of who they are, that the covenant that God had made with them and that God takes this very seriously and that he will continue to lead and guide and provide and, and bless them. The Passover reminds them of what God has done to even redeem their lives and to take them out of bondage and how important this was even today and going forward. And then if you fast forward 1,400 years later, Jesus is in the upper room with his 12 disciples, and they're celebrating the Passover. They're remembering what God has done. They're doing this as the people have, as the disciples had their entire life. And part of that Seder meal with the Passover is that the father of the family or whoever's hosting the Passover, as part of that, that, that Seder, he would stand up and he would take the unleavened bread and he would break it. It was a part of the whole, the whole deal. There was rich, beautiful symbolism in this meal. And Jesus is there with his disciples. And as I said, they've done this in their families growing up. And they know how this goes. And it just reminds them of who they are and their history and who God is. But this time it's different because Jesus is hosting this one. And what they don't realize is while all of the elements of the Passover look back to what happened in Egypt, what they have no idea is that all of that was a foreshadowing of what would be fulfilled in Jesus. And when Jesus leads this Passover Seder, he goes off script and you've got to believe this through these disciples. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. This happened every year at the Passover. This was nothing new. They knew how this worked. They stand up, they give thanks, they break the bread. This was always the case. But Jesus does something different here. After he'd given thanks, he took and he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Listen, Many of us, we can, we can say this by, from heart because we've heard it so long. The disciples, what do you mean this is your body? What do you mean do this in remembrance of you? This had to really mess with them. No, Jesus, this isn't how we do the Passover. You're doing it wrong. This isn't about your body. This is about the Passover. And it's not in remembrance of you. It's, it's in remembrance of what God did back then. That's why we do this. What do you mean this is, this is your body? And then he goes one step further. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This was a part of the, the Seder. They did this every year. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wait, wait, wait. Why do we need a new covenant? We got a covenant that's worked for us for thousands of years. What, 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 who said anything about a new covenant? In your blood, what about, why your blood? Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, this isn't about you. It's about us as a nation. It's about Yahweh. It's about the, we don't need a new covenant. And they had no idea that Jesus would be the final sacrifice. That Jesus would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. That Jesus would be the one that would bring them in to the promised life free from sin and free from guilt. 
into a right relationship, covenant relationship with the Heavenly Father. And from that day forward, these pieces, the bread and the cup, became a physical reminder of a spiritual reality that, yeah, points back to Egypt, but culminates and fulfilled in the pierced hands of Jesus. And so Paul would write, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You look back and you remember, and you look forward and you anticipate. So that when you do this, you remember, you reflect, and you respond. So fast forward 2,000 years from that night with Jesus to us today. And so today, we're going to take communion together. And this is my prayer, is that if you want to participate in this, you're more than welcome. Those of you online, hopefully you have your elements ready. But if you want to participate in this, we would love to have you participate. And if you're like, I'm not there yet or I'm not today, whatever, that's fine too. No judgment at all. My prayer is this, and our elders prayed about this yesterday morning, and our pastors did this morning, that this wouldn't just be a religious ritual, especially for those of us who've done this so many times, that today, as we do this, we would remember what Jesus has done for us and reflect on the seriousness of that and respond appropriately. And my prayer is that the result of that, of remembering, of reflecting, and responding, is that there would be gratitude and fear and courage. Gratitude for what Jesus has done. Healthy fear, awe, honor, respect, worship, because of how seriously he took his relationship with us. And then to respond with courage, knowing that if Jesus loved me that much, if Jesus was willing to do that for me, then I can go forward trusting him, obeying him, following him, surrendering to him, submitting to him, and letting him lead my life. Because, as Paul says in Romans, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So, today we have four stations around here, and uh, the band's going to be playing and, and, uh, and singing a song. And this one I'm going to ask, if you want to, to take communion today, if you would take the elements back to your chair and don't take them yet. I mean, receive, don't, don't, don't eat or drink it yet. Hold on to it, because I want us to do this together. And please, during this time, don't start making a mental checklist of the things you've got to do this afternoon or wonder how the game's going or all the things for this week. Can you, for this moment, because in our busy lives, this may be the only time this week that's carved out to just be still, to slow down, reflect with gratitude, and, and have this healthy fear so that we can respond in a courageous way. And then I'll lead us together 
as we take this all. So if you'd like to participate, you're welcome to do that.